Hi, I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOST podcast. This week, we've chosen to re-release one of my favorite episodes featuring literary icon Margaret Atwood. Margaret is the author of more than 60 books of fiction, poetry, critical essays, children's stories, even comic books. She's also a prominent political and environmental activist. Her best-known book, The Handmaid's Tale, has become an emblem of feminist political resistance. It's been published in 40 languages and was turned into a multi-award-winning TV series on Hulu. In March, Margaret released a new essay collection entitled Burning Questions. And just last week, she was awarded the prestigious Hitchens Prize, which each year recognizes an author or journalist whose work reflects a commitment to free expression and inquiry, a range and depth of intellect, and a willingness to pursue the truth without regard to personal or professional consequence. Margaret was one of the very first guests we had back on the podcast in early 2020. And I'm excited to share this episode with anyone who might have missed it back then. I should note that there was a small issue with my microphone during the recording, so the sound quality isn't quite up to our usual standards, but the quality of the conversation should more than make up for it. So without further ado, here's Margaret Atwood on the FOSS podcast. Margaret, we're so honored to have you here with us today. What a pleasure. And I hope you're washing your hands a lot, Charlie. Thank you. It's, uh, it's definitely been a challenge to be um, living and working in quarantine. So um, speaking of the crazy world we're living in, uh, you are somebody who's known for writing dystopian fiction. Uh, and I'm wondering where that inspiration comes from and why you focused on, on those kinds of stories. Well, now I wonder, uh, let's, go, let's go way back in time and uh, put in that I was born in 1939, two months after the outbreak of World War II. So my early childhood was spent in a world that was dominated by real-life dystopias. Therefore, when I got old enough to read, what should appear right at that moment but 1984. So 1984, I must have read when I was 11 or 12. Made quite an impression. I was a teenager in the 50s when a lot of what we now think of as classic um, sci-fi uh, dystopias appeared, including Fahrenheit 451 and uh, the rest of Ray Bradbury and John Wyndham's book. So I read all of those things. So I was quite immersed in it. It's what I usually did when I was supposed to be doing my homework. So that was one part of that formation. Another part of that formation was that I was studying at, at Harvard in the early 60s, and one of the people I was studying with was Perry Miller. And Perry Miller was one of the handful of people who brought American literature into the academy. So I had to study up a chunk of literature and history that I had not learned in Canada, and that would be 17th century American Puritans. How interesting are they? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> that's certainly relevant to what you've been writing. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of Puritans were not interested in setting up a democracy. Uh, yes, they were interested in escaping religious persecution, but only for themselves. They were quite happy to hand out religious persecution to other people, which they did. This, this was the group that hanged Quakers. Uh, they were not interested in what you would now come to think of as the principles of, of democracy. They were very, very interesting to, to study. So, so clearly your study of history uh, is one of the things that's driven you to, well, not only as source material, but, but also perhaps in your desire to help us um, avoid repeating some of it. Well, how much help can a book be really? We, we don't know. Uh, people say to you, your book changed my life, but you never quite know what that means. So you hesitate to ask, did, did I change it for better or for worse? What was it like before? <laughs> yes, it can cause people to maybe look at things a bit differently, but whether you're going to get a totalitarian dictatorship or not really kind of depends on how many people you can get to line up on your side with ammunition. I was going to say, certainly your success with having Handmaid's Tale uh, into such a popular medium as, as you know, streaming television has opened up the audience um, many fold. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, as you know, Charlie, just because something has been a successful book doesn't mean it will be a good movie or a good television series. Uh, and indeed, some of the most successful movies and television series have been made from mediocre books. So there's there's no correlation. I was lucky enough to get a very dedicated team. So the Hulu team and the MGM team have been behind the project from day one. The cast has been really dedicated to the show, which, which isn't true of just every old show. And it also must be said that it hit at a particular moment in uh, the national history. And that would be right after the election of the current administration. So on November the 9th of 2016, we were halfway through filming the first season and everybody in the show woke up and said to themselves, we're in a different show. Not that anything would have changed in the show itself, the way it would be seen had just radically changed. It wasn't going to be seen as fun dystopia won't happen. It was not going to be seen like that. It was going to be seen more like here it comes. I don't know whether you call that luck or unluck, but it's a throw of the dice that I could not have predicted in 1985 when I first published that book. Well, it must be very gratifying. And I guess sometimes the world catches up to the good work. Uh, well, not always in a happy skippity-hoppity kind of way. <laughs> it's like, how about my other dystopia, the one in which a global pandemic has wiped out most of humanity? Fun. Um, <laughs> a, a fun read, but maybe maybe just not right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Sometimes things are a little too close. Most people who I think um, are, are known for dystopians or dystopian storytelling you don't think of them as people who have a lot of uh, excitement or faith in the future. And yet I, I know so many of the things that you've worked on 
that are really long-term uh, thinking. One particular that I'm particularly thinking of, which I know we've talked about before, but the Future Library Project, yes, for example. That is a wonderful project. So it's the brainchild of a conceptual artist called Katie Patterson, who is from Scotland. And she teamed up with some people from Norway who were interested in the same thing she was, which is slow time, slow time. So it's a slow time project, and it goes like this. They planted a forest in Norway that will grow for 100 years. And in every one of those 100 years, a different author from around the world will submit a secret manuscript, only two copies. And you will take that manuscript to Norway and you will walk into the forest, which is growing. And they have a handover ceremony in which the mayor speaks, the chief librarian speaks, the chief forester speaks, Katie speaks, you speak, and then you hand over your box. And part of the deal is you're not allowed to tell anybody what's in it. You're allowed to tell the title. That's it. And inside has to be something made of words. So you can't just shove your photo album in there. It can be a one word, it can be a poem, it can be an essay, it can be a story, it can be a novel, it can be a screenplay, it can be a diary, it can be a letter, anything made of words. In year 100, so that'll be 2114, enough trees will be cut from the forest to make the paper to print the anthology of the future Library of Norway, and all the boxes will be opened. No pressure on me, I'm going to be dead. Anyway, it's quite a brilliant project, and it got a lot of press around the world because it's so hopeful. It says, there will be a library in Oslo. There will be people, the trees will grow, uh, the people in a hundred years will still be able to read, they'll still be interested in reading, of course, everybody tried to get out of me what was in the box. <laughs> I know work. you've been very good at keeping secrets about <laughs> your your literary intentions. It's quite a long time between The Handmaid's Tale and its sequel. That's true, but I didn't have that intention for 30 years. No, you, you no. weren't planning ever to do that sequel? Nope. Nope. What drove you to do it ultimately? Well, I think it was the way history was going. Uh, I knew I couldn't do it with the voice of the original narrator. That was that was off. It wasn't going to work. But I saw a different way of coming at it. And I'd become quite interested in one of the uh, secondary characters in The Handmaid's Tale, who I moved into a narrator position. So, so let me ask you a little bit about your relationship to technology. Here you are, this gifted wordsmith, this woman who's been writing so beautifully for so long. Normally, we don't think of uh, authors as being early adopters of technology, cutting-edge technologists, and yet over the years, you've consistently shown uh, fascination and, a, and a, a passion to be an early adopter of all sorts of new technologies. Why is that, and, and what are some of your favorites that you've worked in? Well, I like to know how things work. <laughs> So it's not necessarily that you love them. It's that you want to figure them out. I come from a family that contains a lot of kids who used to take television sets apart to see how they worked. 
And I would say kids like that are now learning code probably at a pretty early age because that's how this stuff works. So you want to know how it works, what makes it go. You're interested in what makes it go, but you're then also interested in the effect that that might have on how people live. So who was teaching when I was an undergraduate just down the road from me? It was Marshall McLuhan, who had quite a vogue in the um, 70s and 80s, and then he sort of vanished from view. But, but I expect he's making a comeback now because he was right on point uh, as far as digital te technology goes. The, the medium is the message. It does determine to a certain extent how things get said, how people receive them, um, how we learn, how we understand, all of those sorts of things. Uh, but it would be a mistake to confuse any of it with, with reality. Well, I've been so impressed. I know that we've talked about things like um, Wattpad, uh, which was a social medium for readers and writers. Uh, obviously, you have a huge Twitter following. You even have a we're part of a team that created the, uh, what was it called? The, um, it was originally pen. called the long pen. Is the that what you're pen. thinking of? That was in 2004 or five before any of the technology that we are currently using to make it go had been invented. That meant Charlie, and you'll understand this. We started patenting quite early. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> we started patenting very early. And the original idea was so that authors could sign books for people when they weren't there at the book signing. And we did a number of those around the world. In fact, we did Norman Mailer. His last appearance was in Scotland at the Edinburgh Book Festival, but he was in New England. And the first thing he said when he came up on the screen was, I hate technology. <laughs> and I especially <laughs> hate this technology. And guess what? We realized he had an audio problem. So he turned up the volume and then he could hear everybody, and then he could see that there were 600 enthusiastic Scots waiting wow. upon his every word, and he launched into a full Norman Mailer tirade and then signed everybody's book remotely with a real pen on their books. But publishers couldn't figure out how to implement that. So my original idea was you could take authors to places where ordinarily their publishers would never send them so that people in those places could have the same or similar type of experience. Well, it seems like um, a prescient idea given that right now authors cannot travel. Nobody <laughs> listens to me. They all think I'm a crazy old bat. Uh, but, <laughs> but there you have it. They should have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know you're doing some interesting things right now uh, in this period of social distancing and quarantine um, to be able to, one, uh, connect with audiences and two, provide some entertainment and, and relief for people who are uh, kind of shut in. Do you, do you want to share a couple of things? I know you're doing a project with BBC right now. A project with BBC is pretty hilarious. So it's, it's Mary Beard, the, the two-fisted classicist from Cambridge, uh, who, um, who said, could you do something for us, you know, just a little thing, something, as long as it has to do with the plague. So what comes to, <laughs> what comes to your mind when you think plague? Puppets, naturally. No, Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> That's oh, what oh, okay, right. You know, those of us who know our horror literature, Edgar Allan Poe is really the great-great-granddaddy of that kind of thing. So he has a story called The Mask of the Red Death. 
Death, which sure. we probably all read in, or people my age probably all read in high school. In my case, public school, because some lunatic had put the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe into the school library. Having a background in, in puppetry, I decided to do The Mask of the Red Death with my sister. You always need two people. We weren't going to use anything that couldn't be uh, obtained within the house. So Prince Prospero, who is very rich and and successful and selfish is played by a champagne bottle. And the courtiers are played by wine glasses with the aid of some old wrapping paper, present wrapping paper. And uh, his fortified castle is played by the knives and forks. And we go on from there. <laughs> you, you have a background in puppetry, don't you? It's you did true. some of that in your youth. It's yeah. true. Well, anything can be a puppet. All you need to do is make it talk. Uh, and it's it's amazing how quickly the the belief buy-in for that kind of thing can be. Charlie, I'm getting your attention here. Hello. You very much Hello. are. I'm a snail. <laughs> that is a then if you go transformation like this, really of a sleeve and a finger. <laughs> right. I wish our, our listeners could have seen you turning your sleeve into a puppet. <laughs> Speaking of working in other forms, uh, we know you as a great author, poetry, children's books, comic books. You, you've written so many different types of things. It's, it's true, usually for different reasons. So poetry is, is primal. I started that quite, quite early. The children's books were usually because some publisher said, help, help, do something. Children's books, comic books, my, my big comic book project is called Angel Cat Bird, and it at heart, it's a bird conservation um, project, which you can tell by reading it. And uh, it's it asks the question, okay, domestic cats uh, are an imported species in North America, and they kill an awful lot of birds. But it's no good to say to cat owners, your cat is an evil monster, you must drown it in the toilet. I've, I've had cats, I know, that would generate nothing but hate mail and, and death threats. So you have to um, provide a scenario in which you're helping cats as well as birds. And that's not hard to do when you look at the statistics, because an awful lot of cats get killed, go missing, get hit by cars and all of that if they're let to roam around. They're not as smart as you think they are. Do you, do you feel that there's a lot of opportunity for you to have an influence on environmental issues as an author? Um, as a citizen, we all, have, we all have that power. So one of the bright sides of this quarantine moment that we're in gives us some chan a chance to think. And it gives us a chance to think about what kind of world do we want to be in when hooray, hooray, the door opens and we can walk out and say, uh, we can get back to quotes, quotes, normal. So what is our new normal going to be? Is it going to be a good new normal or is it going to be a bad new normal? Or is it going to be some attempt to recreate uh, the moment we were in just before this happened? So time never goes backwards. You know that, Charlie. <laughs> For that Superman movie, but no, yes. Forget so, the so, Superman movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, what would you hope for this new normal? What would what would be your 
uh, message if you could help to set the, the rules of, of what the world's going to be like when we come out of our quarantine. Yeah, I would refer people to a website called Project Drawdown. Project Drawdown. And on that website of Project Drawdown, you will see all the work that they have put into thinking about the things that we're already doing, that if we did more of them would cause carbon to be drawn down out of the atmosphere to the point at which we hit zero. And they see that as eminently doable. It doesn't call for the invention of any new gizmo or anything like that. It's a whole range of behaviors that if we did them would get us to that point. So no one individual can do all of them, of course not, but everyone can do some of them. Embedded in that, I would say, would be some some points of interest for uh, investors who are willing to think a somewhat different way. And those people, if they got a handle on where we're going, will be the new petrillionaires, I suppose. Do you think that this era where we have the, the web and internet and um, so many different uh, different types of media that are competing for people's attention. Uh, do you find that that's creating a lack of interest in writing? On the contrary. I mean, well, by providing so many other platforms where you can publish and write, write and publish, if anything, it has exponentially increased the number of people who feel they can do it and do do it. So I, I find the same thing. I see that there are there's been this explosion of people writing and reading. And that's a really wonderful kind of democratization now that people feel that they have permission and they have the tools to be able to share their writing. You know, at first when this stuff happens, it's not that everything that's made is great is great literature or great cinema. First stuff done off the Gutenberg Press wasn't wasn't all great literature either. There were, no, there was a spate of pornography and political agitation pamphlets. In point of fact, I mean, as well as the, the the Bible that we all know about, there was all this other stuff happening. And we speak of the great age of the novel, et cetera, et cetera. But what was going on uh, below that, the ephemera that we've forgotten about were penny dreadfuls and scandal sheets, porn, and all, all the kinds of things that we complain about on the internet. With time, we've forgotten about that. Of course, at this moment, we're surrounded by it. So we think about the, the digital contemporary versions of it. Uh, but I'm very hopeful that that this explosion of creativity, of storytelling, of access to the tools to, to express yourself will end up uh, leading to a new kind of renaissance of creativity. Charlie, you're such an optimist. I, we, <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am an optimist. Uh, are you an optimist, Margaret? And in, in a more guarded way, Charlie. I think uh, not not wild enthusiasm, but but I don't think everything's necessarily going down a hole. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and, and when you when you write stories that do seem to suggest that most <laughs> things are going down a hole, um, are you doing that really to uh, help us try on that scenario? All those books are like yeah. blueprints, so they're all saying to you. Okay, here's the house you might end up in if you keep going down the road you're going in. Do you like this house? If you don't like this house, what kind of house would you prefer instead? And if you would prefer that kind of house, don't you think you should change directions and head towards that house that you would prefer? 
What else are you doing these days? How are you responding to COVID-19 crisis? So it's not a really big change from what I might be doing otherwise, except that otherwise I might be traveling, which I'm not. However, some of the things I'm doing that I wouldn't have been doing otherwise, my, my sister comes in, she's within my family bubble, so she's allowed. Um, she made some very attractive face masks for us. Mm. She, has, she has hopefully left me the pattern and some cutout material, which she thinks I'm going to sew into another one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if I do. So I've been doing a certain amount of this sitting in front of the screen, talking to people, not just making puppets out of champagne bottles, but uh, interacting with people on various platforms such as FaceTime and uh, Instagram Live. And uh, so right now we're trying to recreate, in fact, I shouldn't say trying to, we are recreating um, an online version of the bird conservation events that we usually do in, in May. So we're, you can find that at PIBO, you can find it on the website, the Peely Island Bird Observatory, and uh, Spring Song is what we usually do. So we're going to do that online, including a lot of the features that we would normally do in the live event, including the Rubber Chicken Choir, which I have been in the habit of conducting. I had to order some rubber chickens because, you know, there's a shortage of them. I was only ordered allowed to order two at a time. Somebody's, somebody's into the rubber chicken. There's market. a run on rubber chickens? There has been. <laughs> I can't wait to watch this. When is it again? May the 9th, online. It's going to be Facebook Live. And it's going to be on the Peely Island Bird Observatory page, P-I-B-O. And uh, you can either attend as a ticketed person and support bird conservation, or can you can watch the live stream as an unticketed person. But in that case, you won't be eligible for any door prizes. So, um, so let me ask you, when you're uh, thinking these days about the work you do, uh, is any of it in the context of your legacy? Charlie, I don't care, Charlie. I know this may <laughs> alarm you, uh, but I'm not going to be there. Or if I am, that's a whole different story. Do you think I'm going to haunt people if they haven't got my legacy right? Fix the legacy. Fix the legacy. You can't control your legacy. You may think you can, but your legacy is basically what other people think about you after you're dead. And you cannot control that. So why waste time? Another question I wanted to ask, is there a story, a personal story that you like to tell that was very meaningful in the formation of who you are as an artist, who you are as, as a human being? Okay, so I did my first professional public book signing in 1969 in the men's sock and underwear department of the Hudson's Bay store in Edmonton, Alberta. Why? I don't know. It was the publicist's first week on the job. And I think she thought there's an escalator and people will see her sitting there with her book called The Edible Woman, surrounded by jockey shorts. Uh, they will rush to buy this book, which is the opposite of what really happened. What really happened was that the 
guys came in at lunch hour to acquire their socks and jockey shorts and saw this person sitting there with this book called The Edible Woman and ran in the other direction. Uh, and the other one was that there. That scarring, yes. Yeah, just to, just to know that it's, <laughs> it's, it's bad for everybody sometimes. My publisher made a deal with a guy who ran a, a, a set of chain stores that also sold, you know, scotch tape and stationery and stuff like that. And so he was placing his authors in these stores, and he placed me in one of these stores in Winnipeg in a suburban mall on a Tuesday afternoon. Okay, there was nobody in the mall. There was certainly nobody in the store except me with my little table and my book. So I sat there and nothing happened. And finally, I saw this guy walking towards the store outside and inside the mall, but towards the door. And he plop, plop, plop towards the door. He opens the door. He comes in. And I think, my customer. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he comes up to the table and he says to me, where is the scotch tape? And I say, I think it's at the back. And he says, thanks. That was it. Well, no wonder you, you had to invent the long pen. Like these, these early book signing experiences were so scarring. You didn't want to have no, to No, they weren't again. scarring. They were not scarring, Charlie. They were funny. Come on, there's a difference. <laughs> um, so I ask this question a lot. And, and it's one really just, is there one piece of advice that you give to storytellers when they, when they come and sit at your proverbial knee? What would you say to them? Okay, a lot of writers are afraid of the blank page. What I say to them is, nobody's going to see what you write unless you show it to them. So you don't need to be afraid of the page. You can write anything you want on the page because the waste paper basket is right there for you. And if you decide you don't like what's on that page, you can throw it out and nobody will ever know. So usually they're afraid of the page because they're afraid of other people's opinions of them. But uh, they need not undergo those opinions until they are ready. So do not be fearful. Don't be fearful for the wrong reasons. So you don't need to be afraid of the page. The page is, is right there in the room with you. You can tear it up if you want to. I think... Um... Moving forward into the future without fear is a very nice note for us to end our conversation on. Charlie, today. fear exists for a reason. <laughs> Sometimes you're right okay. to be afraid of things. It's a question of getting it straight, which things are really fearful. So I don't want you running into that crowd of coughing people because you're suddenly without fear. Don't do that, Charlie. Okay. I'm going to stay in, stay safe. <laughs> but ultimately, I just wanted to say thank you so very much for sitting down and chatting with me today. It's it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. And uh, certainly, it, it brightens my whole day in terms of being stuck inside here. So thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. And huge thanks again to Margaret Atwood for such an enjoyable conversation. If you'd like to watch the special speaker video that we made with Margaret, or you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter, please visit us at www.fost.org. And a special thank you to our talented producing partner, Charts and Leisure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in for more insightful conversations. And if you know someone who'd like our show, 
please be sure to pass it along. Until next week, be healthy, be safe, and story on. Thank you.